Welcome to the OKC Community Podcast. We are so glad you're here. For more information about us, please visit our website at okccommunitychurch.com. Well, guys, I am really excited to be up here this morning. Um, Tim asked me a few weeks ago, hey, I'm going to be gone this week. I'd love for you to speak. And, and obviously, in the interview process beforehand, I had shared a lot about my story with Tim. And he's like, man, I, I really think you need to share this story with the church. And so I want to do that. But I'm just joking. Um, there's another story I want to take you to first today. And uh, I really believe in God's word. And I believe that's where we get life. And so I want to share a story with you today. For some of you who have grown up in church, it's a story you've heard a hundred times. If you are brand new to church, if this is your first time walking in today, you might actually know the story as well because it was made into a Broadway play. Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, something along those lines. And let me just say, I cannot vouch for what you heard in that because I never saw it. It may be true. It may not. But I'm going to give you the biblical version of Joseph's story today, okay? And it is found in Genesis, if anybody wants to bust out their Bible. And it's in Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, chapter 37. Now, the story itself actually goes all the way into 50, maybe even a little bit of 51. And in lieu of reading 13 chapters to you this morning for my first sermon, uh, I'm going to give you a 10,000-foot view of Joseph's story, Okay. So is everybody ready? Okay, grab on to the bridle and just hold on, okay? So here we go. Chapter 37. The story starts off talking about Jacob, and Jacob is Joseph's father, okay? And Jacob has 12 sons. And at that time, polygamy, okay, was a big part of it, so there's a lot of different wives happening there. So you can imagine having 12 different brothers, or 11 brothers if you're Joseph, and everybody is fighting for the father's affection. But Jacob declares that Joseph is his favorite. He's the youngest. Uh, Jacob is old, and so he kind of had Joseph on the back part of his life, and he says that Joseph is his favorite, so much so that he makes this robe, this colorful, ornamented robe, and he gives it to him. Just a declaration of his favoritism towards Joseph. Well, as you can imagine, this makes his brothers furious, and they hate him. I mean, they really hate him. And Joseph is just a little bit prideful, just a little bit. He walks around with that robe very proudly. One of the things about that story, just a little tidbit, is that in that time, uh, clothes were all tan, all gray, all very natural colors. And so anytime there was something of color, it was considered, wow, that was expensive, you know, Jacob put a lot of time into getting this robe. It had ornaments on it, which made it even more so. So he stuck out like a sore thumb when he wore this robe. Okay, story goes on. Jacob asked Joseph one day, hey, I want you to go out into the fields. I want you to find your brothers. Okay, actually, let me share one other thing. Joseph, he interprets dreams. That's one of the gifts that God gives him. Okay, and one day he goes to his brothers, and he wants to tell them this dream. Now, Joseph at that time had not read how to win friends and influence people, okay? And he literally tells his brothers, he's like, hey, I had this dream. We all went into a field and got the bundles of wheat together, and mine rose high up in the air, and yours were small, and they got around me, and they kneeled down. And his brothers are like, what? So you're saying that you're going to rule us? 
Joseph's like, yeah, probably. <laughs> so you can see even more so. This feeds into the hate that they have. So Joseph goes out in the fields to find them. They see him coming from far away, and they make a plan to kill him. One of his brothers, Reuben, who actually likes Joseph, tells them, hey, wait a minute, let, let's not kill him. Let's, let's throw him in this well. Let's throw him in this cistern is what it says in the Bible. And it's just a very deep water well. And just leave him there. So they strip him of his robe. They throw him down in the well. In the back of Reuben's mind, he's going to come back later to save him. Another brother speaks up. Well, wait a minute. We don't profit from that. So let's sell him as a slave. There is a caravan of Ishmaelites that comes by on their way to Egypt. So they pull him out and they sell their own brother as a slave to the Ishmaelites. They take that robe, they dip it in goat's blood, and they bring it back to their father, Jacob. He was ravished by wolves. Jacob is destroyed. You can imagine being the father and hearing that your son died, was attacked by wild animals. So the story moves on. Joseph goes to Egypt. When he gets to Egypt, there's a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar, it says, is a high-ranking official in Egypt. So he's very wealthy. It says in verse 39, 2 of Genesis, it says, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything that he owned. Joseph is rising up the ladder. God's presence is with him, and he's showing him favor. Well, later down the road, Potiphar's wife gets an eye for Joseph, and the hunt is on. And Joseph literally, seeing this happening, they have a confrontation, and He's a godly man, so Joseph takes off running, but he drops a cloak. She grabs that cloak and screams at the top of her lungs and tells everybody, this man tried to seduce me in my own house. Of course, you can imagine that Potiphar is furious. So now Joseph goes from the head of the house, running everything that Potiphar has, and he's thrown in prison. In the Bible, it doesn't say a whole lot about the timing. It talks about this two-year period, which I'll talk about. But historians say that they think Joseph was in prison for 11 years. Later in that verse, in 39, in verse 37, it says this. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor. So he's gone from high to low, sold as a slave by his brothers. Back to a high, and now he's back in prison. So he's in prison. There's a story of the cup baker and the baker uh, in Pharaoh's house. He, they get a, he gets upset at them, sends them to prison. They meet Joseph. The two of them, the cup bearer and the baker, they have a dream. They both have dreams, and they want Joseph to interpret them, and he does. And they come true. Time goes by. They both get out and head back. 
when he interpreted the dream, Joseph tells the cupbearer, hey, remember me. Remember me when you go back to Pharaoh because I'm in here unjustly. And at this point, I've been in here for nine years. Obviously, he goes back to Pharaoh and he forgets. (laughs) And two more years go by. And now Pharaoh has a dream. And they're searching everywhere for somebody to interpret this dream. And this cupbearer finally remembers, oh, yeah, there's this guy, his name, Joseph, he's in prison. And he interprets dreams. He interpreted it for me, and it came true. So Joseph comes out of prison. He interprets this dream for Pharaoh. He tells him, your dream means that there's going to be seven years of prosperity, and there's going to be seven years of famine. And Joseph comes up with this plan for them to save during these seven years so that they can make it through the seven years of famine. And the Bible says that Pharaoh is so overjoyed with his plan that he makes Joseph the head of Egypt. Literally the prime minister of the entire country. So Joseph's life has known some high highs, right? And it's also known some low lows. He has known his father's love, his father's favor. And how many of you know that that's important in life? Literally, this last week in my house, I'm talking to my mom on the phone and my sister's on the other line and saying, trying to get my mom to tell me that she's her favorite, that she's the favorite, even though I know that I'm the favorite, okay? It happens. And, and Joseph had that. His father literally told him that. He rises to the top of Potiphar's house. And then he is the head over all of Egypt. Joseph has known some great highs. But he's also known some great lows. Thrown in a pit by his own brothers. Sold as a slave. Accused of a crime he didn't commit. And literally thrown in prison for 11 years. So lest you think that Joseph's life was all ice cream and rainbows. Just remember those words, Genesis 39. The Lord was with him. Not only in the high times, but in the low times. I think that story can speak to just about everybody in this room. Why? Because everybody in this room has probably had some really high moments in life. And everybody in this room has probably had some really low moments in life. So I'm 10 years old. And at 10 years old, it's amazing what you can know about yourself, right? At 10 years old, I had two loves, football and music. Football led me to, in seventh grade, meeting my best friends. We played on the same team together for a couple years, but really started to become friends in my seventh grade year. And Troy, who was one of them, he went to uh, a church and his parents went to a church and they were very faithful people. They never missed a Sunday in all the time I've known them. Troy invites me to youth group our seventh grade year and it becomes the youth group that I am in throughout junior high and high school. And it's in eighth grade that I give my life to Christ because of that relationship. We go on to play all through high school Troy and I end up going to our freshman year at Olivet Nazarene University, which is a Division II outside of Chicago, to play football. It was a really strict university. 
And I'll be honest, I'm just a little bit of a rebel. And I remember we went, a group, a big group of us go to Chicago, we go dancing, we get found out, we get put on probation. And I'm just like, man, this is really strict. So I leave after my freshman year, and then I end up at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri, to play football, try and get into this physical therapy program that's kind of an undergraduate you get in at the end of your junior year. And while I'm there, on a whim, I try out for the worship team that helps lead the chapel for all the students. And I make it. And I start leading worship. And I'm sitting in my house off campus on the floor with my guitar one day, writing worship songs for the team. And God speaks to me. And I literally hear him say, this is what you are created for. Yes, just like Field of Dreams, in case you guys were wondering. Okay? <laughs> just like it. This is what you were created for. And here I had come because of football I had become, because I wanted to get into this physical therapy program, and God wrecks my life. I don't get into the physical therapy program because I had like a 3-4. Everybody got it, that got in had like a 4-1. I didn't even know you could have a 4-1. That just shows you how smart I am. I actually leave after I don't get in and I move to Nashville. I spent a couple years in Nashville and quite honestly, some of the best years of my life really living out the passions that God had put inside of me. And I'm feeling all this tension to go home and my brothers are getting into high school. They're, they keep calling, are you going to come home, coach me in wrestling and football? And my best friend, Troy, they're married. He's married now, and he's having his first child. All this pressure to come home. And I remember praying, Lord, Lord, do I stay here or do I go home? And once again, God very distinctly tells me to stay and I go. And to this day, it is still one of the biggest regrets that I have in life. I think about it still. So I go back home. I'm in the wilderness for a few years, but I'm leading worship at every church that I'm at, just kind of on the side. This call that God has given me, I'm, I'm giving a little bit of a stiff arm to. I'm doing, I'm giving him a little. I'm giving him one hand, but I'm really afraid to give him all because everybody knows that pastors don't make any money, and they don't have any fun. <laughs> so I just kind of walk on the fringes and just lead worship. I'm 30 years old now, or actually I'm 27, and <laughs> I'm managing a golf course in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was with a company in Colorado Springs, and they bought a course, and they sent me out there. Another great moment of my life because I started uh, with this church called Believers. And if anybody of you are musical people, Michael Gunger at the time was 17 years old and was this just incredible worship leader. His dad was the pastor, Ed Gunger, and that church really had a huge impact on my life. And it was really Ed who kind of led me to starting to let go of those things. So I'm there in Tulsa, and my skin starts itching. And... Nothing crazy by any means, but I go to a dermatologist. Dermatologist says, hey, uh, I think you just have some allergies. So let's just take some Benadryl. I think you're going to be good. And I take Benadryl, and it goes away. And so I don't really think twice about it. A couple years pass. I move back home. My mom's like, you know what? Let's, uh, let's just 
go and have our doctor just take a look. Because I'm still kind of just having that itching. It's just kind of strange. And our doctor does uh, all b- bunch of blood tests, and she calls me back in. You always know when you get the call back in. You know, it's like, uh-oh. And she says, your liver function tests are through the roof. Whereas a, a normal one might be 20 to 40 for you guys. I was in the 700s. And I'm passed around to doctor to doctor, and finally they figure out that I have this disease called primary sclerosing cholangitis, PSC. And it's a disease of the bile ducts. And what it basically means is your bile ducts are abnormally small, so the bile backs up on your liver and causes cirrhosis of the liver just like an alcoholic's. And they say, hey, the life of this disease is about 8 to 10 years, and it Year seven, eight, you're probably going to kind of go over the cliff. But there are two choices at the end of that time. One, you're going to die. Or you get a liver transplant. Those are the only two outs. So life goes on. Once again, I just have a little bit of itchy skin, but the Benadryl takes care of it. During the next couple of years, I'm leading worship at a church called Pathways in downtown Denver, just this incredible old United Methodist church. It's a Sunday night service. There's about three, 400 people in this service, and a lot of them are single. So it was kind of a, you thought of it as kind of a meat market kind of a thing for Christians, you know what I mean? <laughs> and literally, so much so that I, I, I'm telling my, my, our band, I'm like, guys, don't, don't try and set me up anymore, you know? I don't want being a worship leader, I don't want people to think that I'm, you know, just dating the crowd and, you know, that kind of a thing. Until I'm coming off the stage this one day and I see her. And this girl's eyes were just amazing. I'm talking like Green Lantern eyes. Have you ever had that moment where you kind of feel like you're under the spirit of God and, you, you know, you, just, you can't hold you. I remember sitting in the front row where I sat, and she was like come back there somewhere, and throughout service, I'm like, you know, what in my mind was two or three times, it might have been like seven or eight. So she probably thinks I'm crazy at this point. End of service, we come up to a song, and I remember putting my guitar down, and I'm like, come on. I go back to her with some cheesy line about, you know, you have the most beautiful eyes I've ever seen. Literally, that's the first thing I said. So under the spirit, I'm telling you, it happened. We go out with a bunch of friends that night. A couple nights later, we have coffee for six hours. We, we close down the coffee shop. We end up at a, at a restaurant. We close that place down. A year later, we're married in the Colorado mountains. This is my beautiful wife, Angie, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Snow was falling. It was, it was an amazing wedding. That was at Christmas time. At Easter, we find out that she's pregnant with Noelle, my daughter, which was a miracle in itself because they told us, we're not sure you're going to be able to have kids because of your disease and how it breaks down your body. Two years later, we have Noah. They're 13 and 11 now, by the way. And life is good. I went back and finished school during that time that we were dating in our first year of marriage. Life is good. And then your eight hits. And I go over that cliff. 
and the procedures that I would normally have every six months or so now are getting closer and closer together and I start losing weight and, and I don't have any energy. And I remember it's December of 2008 and I'm in the hospital about seven to 10 days and then I'd get out for a week and then I'd be back in the hospital for another seven to 10 days. You remember Genesis 39, two. The Lord was with him. We had a set of friends and family and church that, man, they got around us. I was devastated that Christmas because this was Noel's third Christmas. And it's the first year, you know, where they're, they're like really excited for Santa Claus to come. She, she kind of gets it a little bit that year. And I'm in the hospital and I can't put up a tree and I can't put lights on my house. And everybody knows it's the most wonderful time of year. And my friends, they go to the house and they put up a tree and they put lights on the house. My doctor gives me a two-hour window that I can go see Noelle in this. She's three years old, and she's an angel in the Christmas play. And they let me out to go see her, and we drive back by the house, and I see my house lit up. And at that time, that meant the world to me. The Lord was with him and showed him favor. It's 2009, and my doctor says to me, hey, we want you to get on another list as well because we're afraid at this point I'm like 26 on the list we're afraid you're going to die before you actually get a liver so we start thinking of what would be a good place to go Angie's parents live here her best friend lives here so we found out that Baptist has a program they're doing some experimental work with pig and cow livers and, and it's actually working I'm just playing with you they don't do <laughs> But that's how I thought about Oklahoma at that point. You know what I mean? I'm from Colorado. <laughs> you know, what's happening out there? I'm joking. We, we come out for a week of testing just to kind of find out where we're at. And uh, it's just me and Angie. And I remember sitting, they call us in again. And we're sitting in this stainless steel room over at Baptist. And this guy walks in, a doctor, obviously. And he's, <laughs> yeah. And he's got a file, and he's flipping through the file, doesn't say anything to me. He closes the file, and he looks at me and Angie, and he goes, well, you could die any day. That's when it hits home. Am I not going to make it to my son's birthday, which is in two months, his one-year-old birthday? Am I not going to get the opportunity to go to Italy one day with my wife and be on one of those boats, drink wine and cheese, the, the most romantic place? On, I'm not, I'm not going to get those opportunities. The good news is I'm number two on their list. Angie goes home. I'm here. We get a close call. We're number two, that they call us in because sometimes it's not a match for number one. My mom flies out, Angie flies out, we think it's gonna happen, and it goes to number one. We have another call from university, and they say, hey, if you can get out here in eight hours, we're gonna hold this liver for you. 
And there's this thing called angel flight where they will fly you for free to a life-saving surgery. And we're on our way out the door, me and Angie's dad, and they call and say, ah, the donor crashed and we weren't able to save the liver. What Angie doesn't tell me is the first week that I'm here waiting for a liver. University calls her and says, we've got a liver for Scott. Is he here? No, he's not. He's in Oklahoma because you guys told us that we wouldn't get one. At this point, I'm like 16th on the list. There's a verse in Habakkuk that God gave me during that season. If you haven't figured out, and you will, I'm kind of an emotional person. (laughs) Habakkuk 3.17, though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Because he makes my feet like the feet of a deer and he enables me to go on the heights. In that season, I held on to that verse. So it's the end of that six weeks. Nothing's happened. Not another liver has come through their program here. And I go home to die. Literally. I want to be with my wife. I want to see my kids. I haven't seen them in six weeks. I want to be with my mom, my family, our church. We get home. Within a week, I'm back in the hospital. And I remember we're on our knees one day, and we're just crying out to God, Lord, we just need hope because this tank is almost empty. And we just need some hope to get through this day. We stopped praying. I remember we're sitting in the window And not 15 minutes later, through those doors, comes Dr. Kahn, Dr. Eagle Kahn. He's the head of transplant surgery at the hospital. And he just makes his way into my room. And he says, Scott, I don't want you to worry. I'm going to get you a liver. And he leaves. Don't tell me my God's not real. It wasn't that Dr. Kahn came in and gave us this great news or this hope. It's that Genesis 39.2, the Lord is with him. My God is with me. Three weeks later, I'm sitting in my favorite chair. I remember I've got a blue polo t-shirt on and I'm eating a tuna fish sandwich, which I'm not supposed to eat because of sodium. But I was a really bad patient. And they call and say, Scott, we've got a liver for you. Amen. And that day, my skin, which is yellow, but he would put up those pictures. That's me. And that's in December of that year. You can see my arm has just lost all muscle mass. And here, and the, the man on the left there is my Jewish friend, Dr. Kahn. At that point, I'm thinking, I'm going to make it to my son's first birthday. 
Life is good. Life is good. God, you are good. And then three months later, Angie's actually on a business trip or she's here. I can't remember. I start throwing up blood. I thought I was on the mountaintop and I was going to stay on the mountaintop, but that came crashing down. Over the next three months, I'm probably picked up by the ambulance at our house another three or four times because I can't, something keeps happening and I keep having all this blood and they can't figure out what it is. Another way of me showing you how God was in that, we, we were probably picked up by an ambulance about 12 times over that last year from my house. Every single time it happened, my kids were in bed. God is good. So December of that year, one of my doctors, Dr. Foreman, I'm in the hospital, and she's like, you remember that one case like eight years ago? And they go and look it up in the history, and they figure out that I've got the pseudoaneurysm where they connected the hepatic artery to my liver. And it's blowing up like a bubble and then just going into my small intestines over and over. If that pops, I'm dead. But it keeps going into my small intestines. I go into surgery. I remember waking up from the surgery, and what they basically do is they go in and they put a stent in just so that pseudoaneurysm doesn't happen and blood can just flow through it. I wake up, and there's Dr. Kahn, which is a little bit interesting because he's not the one who did the surgery. It was a radiology, a total different unit. And he says to me, hey, uh, in the process of them putting that stint in, they clotted off your hepatic artery, which brings about 20% of the blood flow to your liver. We're probably going to have to retransplant you. And my friends, that is the lowest I've ever been in my life. Those friends that came and did my Christmas lights, what I didn't know is that Steve, who was the pastor at our church at that time, and Blake, one of the elders, they had actually gotten tested to see if they could give me part of their livers, and neither of them was a match. Well, Steve shows up that day with his guitar, and he just goes over in the corner, starts playing worship music. Genesis 39.2, the Lord is with him. Dr. Com comes back in and says, Scott, you, you got two choices. You can sulk and be mad and sad and all that that entails, or you can just fight like you've been fighting. I walked out of that hospital that day, and it's been 10 years. And, yeah... And I haven't, I haven't had any major surgeries. I would say 98% of my liver tests have been normal for me. Still not normal for you, but normal for me. And God is good. Why do I share this story with you today? Part of it is my desire is to get to know every single one of you in this room and over the next year, however long it takes, I'm going to do that. It is so you could get to know me as well. But I wanted to share both of these stories today because 
in our lives, every single one of us, we've got high highs and we've got low lows. We have celebrations when we graduate from high school and when we, we graduate from college. All these huge moments in our life when we meet our spouse, when we have our first child, when we take that trip of a lifetime with our friends, we have these incredible moments in life. But we also have some really hard times in life. Depression, loneliness, when you lose a loved one, when you lose your job that was your dream job, so many low moments in life for me finding out you have a disease. But this, the moral of this story is, is that just like Joseph, Genesis 39.2 says the Lord was with him. And guess what? My story is not that special. And, and Joseph's story is not that special. A lot of people sometimes look at these stories in the Bible and they think, oh, he was a king of the faith. No, not really. Joseph, you know, he was a little bit arrogant. He, you know, he had some issues in life as well. And God was with him in the high times, and God was with him in the low times. It said when he was in prison, let me read it one more time, but while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor. When we're in the midst of life sometimes, it is really hard to see God's hand. But he's there. He wants to be part of your story. And he is. Sometimes we just need to recognize that. When Dr. Kam walked in that day, the presence of God was so real. And so many times that I'm not even telling you about, we would ask for hope and ask for a prayer, and God would give Angie these verses in the Bible. Be still, for I am fighting for you. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And every time it was exactly what we needed, it was exactly what we needed to hear. God's presence was so real. And he can be there in the midst of your story the exact same way. We just have to go after him. It says in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. You know, I haven't been here very long, but just in the month I've been here, I've heard about Karen, who shared her testimony a few weeks ago, who was told she has terminal cancer, and a year later, nothing. She actually just sent a text to Christy this week saying my, my blood tests were clean. Yep. I've heard stories of ladies in some of their darkest days that have come up through Hope House, and now they're shining like stars on the other end that go to our church. Just incredible stories of God's faithfulness to be with us in the low times and the high times. Something as simple as I, I met with Jeremy for coffee and he tells me, man, I had this like chronic back pain and wham, one day, God heals it. It's gone. He wants to be a part of your story. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. 
You remember when I told you guys when I was 20, I heard that voice. This is what you were created for. For so many years, I kind of gave God that stiff arm. I gave him a little bit. You know, I would lead worship, but Lord, I, I don't know exactly what you meant. I mean, what, was it just, you know, was it because I was playing guitar? Was I supposed to play guitar? Or was it that I was singing? Or was it that I was just on my butt? Is that what I, you know, is that what it? It was, I don't, this call, created for what? And it took me a while, but I figured out what it was that God was calling me to. He was calling me to tell people about Jesus, to encourage people about Jesus. Whether it was writing songs in Nashville, whether it is writing books, whether it's preaching, whether it's going out for coffee, whether it's getting together with a group of guys to watch a football game and encouraging them in their life. That's what God has called me to. And for a lot of years, guys, I kind of put that voice and just held it at bay. And I don't want you to make the same mistake because God is probably speaking right now to each and every one of you in some area in your life. Maybe it's to reach out to that sibling who you haven't talked to in a while. Maybe you had a fight. Maybe it is to get marriage counseling because you're having some struggles in the midst of this marriage. Maybe you're single and, man, you're just struggling with loneliness. Let me tell you, I didn't get married till I was 34 years old. I know that struggle. But God is faithful. And if you wait on him, I'm telling you, it's worth it. There's, my wife, she was a nurse. I don't know if I told you guys that. Can I tell you how many times I needed a nurse in the midst of that story? God knew what he was doing. Has anybody in here ever been river rafting? Okay, well, I grew up in Colorado. Spent a lot of years fly fishing, river rafting. And one time I'm fishing, fly fishing. It's the only way to do it. And I keep edging farther out into the river until finally the current just takes me. And it wasn't this pretty Brad Pitt river runs through it where you're, you're still got the fish on your line as you're floating down. It's not that. I'm telling you, this is all out. Ah! You know, and, but I've grown up on the river. And I know, you know, position, feet forward. And I'm just floating down the river till finally God takes me in to a silent spot and I get out. Sometimes in our life, God just wants you to let go and get in the river, and it's going to be the happiest place you've ever been. Because you know what? God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His plan for you is so much more than the plan you thought up for yourself. I am a testament to that. These last 10 years in ministry since I finally made that decision, Outside of marrying Angie and my two kids, it's been the t best 10 years of my life because I'm living in the midst of God's plan. That's my hope for you today. He's speaking something to you. Maybe it's to 
be an alpha. Maybe it's to be in the small group equipping classes that we're doing this fall to help you grow in your faith. Maybe it's to get up 15 minutes earlier in the morning just to let him have control of your day. I don't know what it is, but you do. And today I just want to encourage you. Listen to his voice. Why? Because you are his favorite. Did you hear that? You are his favorite. If it was just you, he would have died on the cross. And he wants to put that robe on you today and cry from the mountaintops. My son is listening to me finally. That was my story. What's your story? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, Father, I'm thankful for the opportunity to share your story this morning of how you love us, Lord, of how you desire to be a part of our lives if we'll just let go, if we'll just trust you, if we'll just let you take the reins. Father, move in our hearts. Move in our souls. Move us to a new place in our relationship with you. And let us have the faithfulness to follow that voice that keeps whispering to us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If there's anything we can pray with you about, or if you have questions about God, we'd love to talk with you. Please visit our contact page at okccommunitychurch.com.